Welcome to The Potter Scholar. I am your host, Natasha Burge, and together we will be taking a scholarly approach to the Harry Potter books. I have a PhD in creative writing and spent many years in academia studying literature, and here we will explore various aspects of the books to celebrate the magic they have given us. And if you want to know more about The Potter Scholar or support the podcast, please check out the link to my Patreon in the episode description. Wands out! today's episode, we are continuing our reread of The Philosopher's Stone. Picking up where we left off, we begin with the journey from platform nine and three quarters, which brings us to the portion of the hero's journey known as crossing the threshold. This, I love this stage. I think it might be one of my favorites in the hero's journey. This is often a liminal space that connects two worlds. It's a space where the hero the hero must cross through successfully to continue their journey, but it's not easy. It's not just like walking across the street. Mythically, this part of the hero's journey must be taken alone without the gifts and the knowledge given by the mentor or the supernatural aid, basically what Hagrid was in the last phase of the hero's journey. So you have to do it alone without the comfort of the mentor's physical presence Uh, the supernatural aids, physical presence, Harry on his own without Hagrid, we see him wandering around King's Cross, trying to contain his growing panic, unsure of where he should go or what he should do. All he knows is he has a train to catch and he really better be there. These thresholds are often places, as Joseph Campbell says, that bound the limits of the hero's present sphere or life horizon. Beyond them is darkness and the unknown, the pull of a great but frightening adventure that will take them beyond the bounds of everything they have ever known. In fairy tales and mythic stories, the threshold itself can often be a place of peril. Things in these liminal spaces where one world slowly gives way to another must be negotiated carefully. There are often threshold guardians, tricky, mysterious figures who challenge the hero in some way. I think for us here, we can consider the mystery of Platform 9 and 3 quarters itself a threshold guardian. After all, it doesn't have to be like this. Harry, you know, Hagrid could have delivered Harry safely to the train, or Harry could just show up and see a placard that reads Hogwarts Express this way and get past this hurdle without a delay. But there is a delay, and it's confounding. The task for the hero at this point is to figure out how to get around the threshold guardians so he can continue on his quest, in a sense, proving his commitment to his destiny. Heroes often here have a difficult choice to make, and they must show their bravery and cunning. Their actions at this point often have to do with making the effort to see the world in a new way. The threat at this stage often turns out to be nothing more than an illusion that the hero has to be brave and canny enough to see through. It's common for the kind of courage called for here to be a leap of faith, that kind of courage. The hero doesn't yet know enough to have confidence in the way things will go in this almost new world. He can't even have confidence in himself very much as he is not yet really a hero, but he has to demonstrate faith. Now, I find the way that that Harry gets around the threshold guardian here 
to be quite telling about a main strength that we will see him develop throughout the series, which is to rely on his friends. When Harry spots a family with flaming red hair talking about muggles and platform nine and three quarters, he isn't afraid to approach them and admit his ignorance. It is, of course, the Weasleys. Rereading, it is lovely to see how well-realized the Weasleys family's personalities are right from the very beginning. They are all clearly well-defined, from Fred and George's wisecracks, to Mrs. Weasley's maternal fretting, to Percy's high-handed self-importance. Even shy little Ginny, who will not really feature in this book at all, as she's too young to attend Hogwarts, she has a sweetly encouraging good luck to offer Harry. Seeing them here like this, disheveled at King's Cross, feels like meeting old friends. So Harry makes a choice to ask his friends, or people who will become his friends, for help. This is brave. He also has to be willing to see the world in a new way, to have faith that the apparently solid stone wall of Platform 9 and 3 quarters really will permit him passage if he runs at it. He just has to believe. This is a turning point in the story. We have now left one world behind, and as Harry passes through Platform 9 and 3 quarters, we have entered another. The hero's successful passage through the threshold signifies the beginning of the mythic stage termed the belly of the whale. This is when the hero is fully submerged in the perilous realm. It's been hinting up until now. We've seen, you know, we've seen bits and pieces of it beginning to intrude upon his world, but now he is in it. He has made a final break with his previous life. He could even be said to have died to his previous life and has committed to his journey, whatever it may be. This stage of the adventure and myths found all over the world, it's often likened to a space of rebirth. The hero has died to the old way of life, annihilating the person he used to be, and entered a womb-like dimension where he will be remade so that he can be born anew, and by the end of the tale, be a better person worthy of being a hero. As Harry boards platform nine and three quarters, his transformation has begun. But of course, Rowling manages to weave these mythic threads with what has to be one of the most enjoyable scenes in the entire series. Harry Potter meeting Ron Weasley and sharing a feast of chocolate frogs, Drupal's best blowing gum, Bertie Bot's every flavor beans, pumpkin pasties, cauldron cakes, licorice wands, and more. A true sign of a great, a great writer is someone who they can do multiple things at once while making it look easy. And this scene really epitomizes that to me. If you look carefully, Every single sentence in this scene is punching above its weight, with each sentence doing a tremendous amount of work. In this scene, Ron deftly takes over from Hagrid as Harry's guide into the magical world, and he helps Harry learn important information, even if we won't realize it's important until later in the book. Like when we learn from the chocolate frog card that Dumbledore was friends with Nicholas Flamel, or when Ron explains that pictures in the wizarding world move or tells Harry about Gryffindor House and Quidditch. There's also brilliant character building at the very same time in this scene. We learn so much about Ron, that he has a big family, feels a bit embarrassed about not having much money, and character building of Harry too, as it's so sweet when he realizes he's never had anything to share with anyone else before, and that he quite likes it. He loves sharing, Um, as he generously shares his feast with Ron. It's a very touching moment. And then there is something 
else that Rowling is truly a genius at. She draws from detective stories, mystery stories, to know how to build suspense with foreshadowing. This kind of dispensing of information lets the reader's mind know there's something going on here, and we don't yet quite know the full story, but human beings love finding patterns and connecting the dots of mystery. It lights up our brains. So when we hear these little bits of information, we perk up and pay attention. And this is the definition of a page turner. You want to turn the pages faster and faster to figure it all out. In this scene on the Hogwarts Express, that little drop of information is Ron mentioning the break-in at Gringotts Bank, something that, of course, becomes pivotal to this story later on. Now, as Joseph Campbell says, once the hero has successfully crossed the threshold, he enters a dream landscape. This landscape is curiously fluid and shifting. It is filled with ambiguous forms and creatures. It's a place where the hero has to survive a succession of trials. And mythically, this new world will be in a sharp contrast to the old. And there will be many new rules the hero must learn. This is a landscape where the hero may, in the course of his trials, be given help by a mentor, or perhaps even the supernatural helper, the supernatural aide who came to guide him toward the threshold. It is also here in this space that he may learn for the first time, to quote Campbell, that there is a benign power everywhere supporting him in his superhuman passage. This now is the overarching mythic stage of initiation, in which the hero will face great trials and temptations. The trials in this stage of the journey will not, not usually be deadly, but will hone the hero in a way that prepares him for the life and death battle of the climax. We are immediately given a sense of the changed world and the dangers within it in the beautiful but forbidding approach to Hogwarts Castle, which if you haven't read Philosopher's Stone in a while, do me a favor and go back and just read that approach when Hagrid picks them up and takes them through the woods and they can see Hogwarts emerging in the night, the stars, the smell of the lake. It's a beautiful scene. So we also have a hint of dangers to come in the sorting hat, which is a daunting experience for Harry. And then, of course, in Dumbledore's speech, where he gives them an introduction to the kind of child safety standards they have at Hogwarts when he mentions that the forest is out of bounds and not to go into the third corridor unless you wish to die a most grisly death. Now, at Hogwarts, the stairs move, the figures in the painting seems to be alive, and there are even ghosts who themselves show evidence of having died the most gruesome deaths. This is where Harry is destined to be, but it's also immediately apparent that just because he belongs there does not mean it is a safe place. When we meet Snape in Harry's first potions class, there is an excellent little chiastic moment when Snape mentions that he can teach students to stopper death. This is book one, which means it echoes with book seven. And while it is in book six that behind the scenes Snape has stoppered Dumbledore's death temporarily, it's not until book seven that Harry learns of this. So you can see that echo being planted already right then. Now the mythic trials in this stage of the book are many. There is the troll that is loosed in the school that Ron and Harry must overcome to protect Hermione, and Harry's increasing difficulties with Draco. 
An important aspect of this stage of the mythic journey is the making of friends and enemies, both of which he, uh, Harry does here. Then there is the first Quidditch match of the year, which paints Snape in an ambiguous light. Was he really putting a jinx on Harry? And of course, there is the midnight duel with Draco, which isn't a duel at all, but an attempt by Draco to get Harry in trouble, which leads to the discovery that the three-headed dog on the third floor corridor on the right-hand side is standing on a trap door, which, as brilliant Hermione observes, means he must be guarding something. Another brilliant drop of information by Rowling that raises a question in the reader's mind that begs to be answered, which makes those pages turn faster and faster. This chapter now ends with a tantalizing drop of information again as Hagrid lets slip that he knows about the three-headed dog. In fact, he bought it off a Greek chappy, which is a cheeky nod toward the three-headed dog of Greek myth who guards the gates of the underworld, Cerberus. And then Hagrid mentions Nicholas Flamel, a clue that will eventually lead the trio of Ron, Harry, and Hermione to unravel the whole mystery, but which for now will keep them and the reader hooked on figuring it out. And now we come to the biggest trial and temptation of this stage of Harry's mythic journey during his first year of Hogwarts, the Mirror of Erised. When Harry, using the invisibility cloak a mysterious gift giver gave to him for Christmas, discovers this strange mirror sitting in a disused classroom over the Christmas holiday, he is astonished to find that it shows his parents, Lily and James Potter, the parents that he has never known but always loved, the parents that died to protect him from Voldemort. Interestingly, here Harry sees his family first on Christmas Day, and as we might guess, knowing the chiastic story structure Rowling uses across the series, Harry visits his parents' grave in Godric's Hollow and learns more about their death on Christmas Day in Book 7. Another beautiful echo. Now, Temptation is often a critical aspect of this stage of the hero's journey. I often think of temptation as the temptation of power or glory or riches. But Rowling here is playing with a much subtler temptation. How can we blame an orphan who has never known his parents for wanting to spend his time lost in a reflected fantasy of being with them? But the mirror of Erised immediately consumes Harry's life. He is instantly less interested in discovering the mystery of who Nicholas Flamel is, what the three-headed dog is guarding. It doesn't seem to matter at all anymore when compared to the joy of getting to be reunited, at least in some sense, with his dead parents. Interestingly, one stage of this phase of the hero's journey is termed the meeting of the goddess, who in mythology is a figure that represents the feminine ideal and is often a universal mother type of goddess. And here, Harry's meeting with his literal mother. Mythically, this part of the hero's journey is often seen as representing to the hero the world of his innocence before he embarked on the dangerous journey he is on now. Just as the mother figure in mythology obviously symbolizes birth, she likewise often symbolizes death. So we have in one figure, the womb and the tomb. This too is here in Potter because Lily chose to sacrifice her life and die 
in order to save her infant son, Harry. So she is life in the sense that she gave birth to Harry. And she is death because she died. And in dying, she cast her magical protection on Harry, which in turn protects him and gives him life. Lily is a very powerful cyclical symbol of the circular nature of life. But on the third night, Harry, obsessed with seeing his parents again, not caring about anything else, completely, his focus has been completely reoriented to getting to the mirror of Eriset at all costs. So on the third night, as he creeps through the dark corridors of Hogwarts, under the cover of his invisibility cloak, he finds that he isn't alone in the room where the mirror of Eriset is. Dumbledore is waiting there for him. And here we have Dumbledore stepping into the role he will assume throughout the series, that of mentor. He not only gives Harry wisdom that will eventually be critical to Harry's ability to use the mirror effectively in the climactic scene of the book and to get the Philosopher's Stone, but Dumbledore being Dumbledore and the alchemical journey of these books being about perfecting Harry spiritually and morally so that he can become a hero, he also gives him advice that transforms his heart. Dumbledore explains to him that it does not do to dwell on dreams and forget to live. This breaks the emotional hold of the mirror on Harry, the temptation that has been derailing his life. Harry now understands that the mirror is not a benign magical object. It, it is, in fact, a, a temptation that's been pulling him into his clutches and making him basically give his life away for something that cannot be. His parents are gone. They will never return. And it is not wise for Harry to spend his life in a fantasy when he could actually be living his life. In terms of the alchemical journey, this scene also indicates to the reader that Harry has passed from the Negrito black stage of dissolution to the albedo white stage of purification. This is a stage of cleansing. And Dumbledore's first name, Albus, means white in Latin, suggesting that he is very significantly linked to this stage of the process. And here he plays his part perfectly. He, in effect, through his wisdom, cleanses Harry of the growing illusion that he could find happiness here in front of an enchanted mirror. He gives Harry very potent insight and advice that purifies Harry's vision and helps him understand the path he should be on. We are now coming to the end of this episode and the end of this stage of Harry's mythic journey. We have now seen Harry take the brave step across the threshold that separated the ordinary world from the perilous realm, the realm of his destiny, but also of great danger. In just a few short months, Harry has been at school. He's already been put through a series of increasingly difficult trials and temptations that are honing his character and really improving who he is as a person. He has learned to make friends, to be courageous, to trust others, and to follow his heart when he feels something is right and must be done. And now, with the mirror of Erised and Dumbledore's sage advice, Harry is learning to negotiate grief. For now, we leave Harry as he has successfully negotiated the trickster energy of the threshold, immersed himself in the dangers of the belly of the whale, made friends and enemies, resisted temptation, and crested the peak of the albedo stage of his alchemical transformation thanks to the guidance of his mentor Dumbledore. 
This brings us to the brink of the next stage of the hero's journey, which we will cover in a later episode, which is the approach to the inmost cave or apotheosis or the abyss of life and death, where the hero will find both wonder and terror and will have to face their final ordeal. Thank you for joining me for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Until next time, happy reading. And if you want to know more about The Potter Scholar or support the podcast, please check out the link to my Patreon in the episode description. 